On behalf of IronNet Cybersecurity, AWS, and Kerasoft, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around protecting your network in the post-COVID environment, new threats and new approaches to collective defense in the cloud, where Mike Ehrlich, CTO at IronNet, John Ford, cybersecurity strategist at IronNet, and Tim Raines, regional leader at AWS, will discuss how a collective defense strategy in the cloud can help federal agencies scale their defenses rapidly to detect and share across sectors and identify new threats. So today, obviously, we'll be talking about the post-COVID environment, the new threats, the new approaches to, to beating those threats, and protecting yourself, your agency, uh, your company in this, uh, in this new environment. Uh, we have a great uh, presentation set up for you guys today. Uh, we'll, be, we'll, be, uh, we'll be having a uh, sort of guided conversation led by Mike Ehrlich, currently the CTO at IronNet Cybersecurity. Mike brings two decades of experience in cybersecurity to bear. Uh, have you been a senior engineer with the U.S. Department of Defense, a director of Blackburn Technologies, uh, the president of Critical Mission Engineering, LLC, as well as uh, the VP of Product Operations and now CTO at IronNet Cybersecurity. He's joined by John Ford, a cybersecurity strategist with IronNet Cybersecurity. Prior to coming to IronNet, John Ford was a CISO at ConnectWise, uh, was the principal and founder of Sienna Group, um, and also was the CISO at, uh, and VP uh, for Privacy at Wellcare Solutions, a healthcare provider. And then, last but certainly not least, we have Tim Raines, who's a, a regional leader in security and compliance uh, and business acceleration with AWS, where he's been for three years. Prior to that, he was the Executive Director for Cybersecurity Strategy at Las Vegas Sands Corporation, and for almost two decades was a Director and a Chief Security Advisor at Microsoft. I think one of the things I would like to talk about uh, right off the bat, you know, the title of this talk today is talking about the post-COVID environment. Um, I don't believe we're in the post-COVID environment yet. I, I think we are in the COVID environment. Um, we are still struggling with, with that virus. Uh, fundamentally changing the way people and organizations act, um, fundamentally in many respects changing uh, not just cybersecurity practices, right, but all sorts of practices in our daily lives. Um, I count myself, uh, my wife and my daughter, as three fortunate uh, victims, if you will, of COVID. We, we've all had it and, and we've recovered quite well. Uh, and my heart goes out to those that, that are still struggling with it today. Um, but, but as I said, you know, COVID has affected virtually every aspect of our lives. And so, you know, I, I'd like to toss this over to John and Tim, uh, perhaps even in that order. Um, you know, John, you've, you've got a, a great background as a CISO of some very interesting organizations. Um, can, you, can you give me your thoughts on what you've seen from, from your view on what's new and different in this COVID environment? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And, um, Welcome, everybody, and thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, Michael, you set it up, you know, perfectly. This is, you know, this has affected every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our, our working lives, right? Um, you know, as you know, as, as we've been going around the world talking to customers virtually, um, I, I, I think what's really ringing true and surprising to me um, is both the velocity and volume of attacks um, that are hitting companies and, and how fast uh, our adversaries, uh, whether they be nation states, cartels, attack groups, what have you, um, and how rapidly they pivoted to, you know, um, you know, to uh, executing attacks on organizations of all sizes. Um, and I think, you know, as we look at 
um, how companies are trying to operate today. Um, like uh, just to give you a, a non-cybersecurity example, um, if you were to go out and try to buy an appliance today, you might be surprised to find that some of them are on indefinite back order because, um, you know, basically the supply chains that create those appliances, um, they, they shut down, right? And, and nobody really keeps inventory anymore. Um, you know, when we think about that from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, we always had organizations that were able to maintain a certain posture based upon the resources, um, you know, that we provided, right? But, but nothing much more than that. Um, and that's fine. So what we're seeing today is the inability of firms, you know, given this increase in velocity and volume, is really to make use of, of the threat information that they normally would be able to make use of. Um, and it's almost like, you know, having a very, a very bad signal-to-noise ratio, right? Uh, and, they, you know, they're dealing with uh, what we used to say is 80% uh, trusted networks and 20% untrusted. We basically flipped that on its, bid, on its head, and so has our entire supply chain. So, um, you know, this is really a challenging environment, one that really nobody uh, that's inside of security has really gone through before. Um, but we're going to learn a lot from it. So I, I, I think uh, I'm an optimist. I think at the end there's going to be some really good uh, practices and processes that come out of this. Yeah, thanks, Don. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting observation that, uh, you know, the, the secured versus unsecured network operations for most companies, you know. I look at myself today, and while I am operating on a work computer, uh, that work computer is not sitting at work, right? It's sitting at, uh, well, I wish it could be sitting at Starbucks, but Starbucks, uh, you know, things like that are closed. Um, uh, perhaps some of you are lucky enough that they are open. Uh, but, but, you know, right now we're sitting on my home network, and certainly my home network, believe it or not, given my background, is not as well defended as many corporate networks, right? So you have this mix, uh, like you said, of, of what you hope to be secure assets operating on on insecure networks uh, connected to what you hope are, are again, secure assets. And, and so, you know, it's really interesting. We, we understand how, how the attacker, like you mentioned, John, has pivoted, right? They're taking every advantage they can of COVID whether it's phishing or disinformation to really disrupt our operations. Uh, you know, Tim, you, you sit there at AWS. Uh, you know, you, you host many huge organizations' infrastructure. And I'm curious uh, your perspective on how, uh, since COVID, right, threats have changed either to the organizations that you host or even to your own infrastructure at AWS. Right. Well, certainly we've seen a big shift. Uh, since March, uh, when COVID started to uh, really interrupt the economy operations of so many organizations in the public sector. And so we saw a big shift with across the board with digital transformation projects and customers and public sector organizations trying to accelerate those. Um, and so that drove a bunch of changes that we haven't seen happen so rapidly in the past. So, for instance, in education, um, suddenly teachers and students and parents needed a secure place to collaborate. Um, and so there was a scramble to find that. Um, in, for instance, financial services, uh, regulators suddenly saw two to three times the volume of securities trading in the United States. And so how do they keep up with the volume of that and make sure that, uh, you know, that they're actually providing oversight properly? 
Um, in every single vertical, we saw an uptake of cloud-based video conferencing. Um, and so with all of these behavioral changes and the infrastructure required to support those changes, uh, you know, history has shown us this over and over again, is bad guys will follow the economy wherever it goes. And so uh, clearly, you know, suddenly you saw a big shift with all sorts of phishing attacks related to COVID. Uh, trying to get people's attention, trying to get them to click on malicious links, trying to get them to open up malicious attachments and so on. And I think that's all fairly predictable. But as you mentioned uh, earlier, people now are all working from home. It's remote work. And the devices that they're working on, uh, that's where the action is, right? And so how do we um, take the best of what we offer and try to collectively understand what those threats look like and collectively sort of inoculate everybody um, at once because doing it sort of a piecemeal fashion, sort of an organization by organization trying to do this themselves, when suddenly they've gone from fairly centralized operations to distributed operations okay. is super hard, right? And so some, a form of collective defense, I think, is very helpful in an environment like that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are, you know, thousands of organizations out there that have spent years putting in place um, plans to affect uh, resiliency of their operations and redundancy of their operations. And typically, uh, at least the ones that I've seen put those in place, those are in response to uh, what I would call physical natural disasters, right? Um, a huge storm comes in and powers out for a long time, or there's an earthquake, or you know, an explosion happens at a refinery. How how do I how do I do that? Um, it, it almost feels like um, like like we, the U.S., uh, just the world in general, has missed an opportunity to plan for uh, resiliency and redundancy when something like this happens, right? when almost 100% of the workforce that can work from home all of a sudden works from home, right? Um, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think anyone planned for that. And, and we've been thrown into this world where the, the few security resources we had in the past, right, that were already focused on plans for defending, you know, our, my own organization, given the walls around it that I control, those same people are now forced, as you said, right, to start adopting new cloud technologies to push services out to a, to a, a wider spread population, uh, and now also in charge of somehow securing all those little devices, right, that, that we can operate on when we're in the freedom of home, right? I can go from my iPad to my laptop. You know, if we, if we compare that to, to the response to the COVID virus, Right? There's, there, there are a lot of similarities, right? The, the COVID virus, um, it, it doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what country you're in, right? It is propagating around the world in a relatively uncontrolled fashion. It took us uh, uh, probably longer than it should have to recognize the fact that it was there and operating in our environments. And as I'm saying these words, right, think to any malware, think to any attacker, uh, the, the cybersecurity corollary to that. Um, you know, when, when, when we found it, we did not have a good group response, right? The, the U.S. struggled with response. Many, many countries struggled with response, right? 
large organizations struggled. Um, if, if, I, if I continue that analogy, I go to what we now all call Operation Warp Speed, right, which was a government initiative that is ongoing now to bring uh, private industry, right, private healthcare providers, private pharmaceutical providers, uh, get them communicating and working together with the public, uh, with the public sector in this public-private partnership to accelerate countermeasures for something we all need to defend against, right? Uh, and so, so that example where we were very quickly able to stand up this, I will call it collective defense for COVID capability, right? It seems that there's lessons there that we can apply to cybersecurity. And, and, and so, you know, using that sort of public-private partnership, I was wondering, John, you know, it, can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen um, private-public partnerships uh, respond to COVID, specifically to cybersecurity, and, and how we can use this concept of collective events, um, you know, just to, to make everyone better, to make everyone safer? Yeah, Michael. And first, um, you know, if it makes sense, uh, let me let me kind of talk to what we believe collective defense is. <laughs> um, you know, we, we look at that as you know a series of technical capabilities uh, that can accelerate the discovery of new threats, right? And we do that through things like detection, correlation, you know, sharing in real time um, of like anonymous information, right? And the outcome of that is uh, a broader visibility and situational awareness of, of how we can respond to new threats. Not, you know, we're not talking about old threats. Um, with respect to Operation Warp Speed, which is like a perfect example, um, you know, what we're witnessing is, is this capability uh, developing, you know, between the public and private sector. Uh, because as we know, like, you know, those life sciences organizations, their entire supply chains uh, you know, are, are heavily under attack today. And and so I, I, I think this, you know, would this have evolved on its own? Uh, you know, we, we think so, right? You know, we've been uh, preaching, you know, this, this model uh, for several years, but uh, sometimes, you know, it, it takes a good pandemic, um, you know, to get something like this accomplished, right? But, you know, Operation Mode Speed is, is not alone. Like we, when we think about, you know, the critical infrastructure environment, uh, within the United States, when we think about what that looks like for other countries, our, our allies, right, um, you know, and their and their respective governments, right, um, you know, we all have the the ability to benefit from um, a partnership, a public-private you know, sector partnership like this, where information that would not normally be known in the public sector, um, you know, they can take advantage of, right. So, um, you know, th this is, you know, in, in a sense, we also know that. Campaigns are not limited to companies, sectors, or even nations, right? Attack campaigns can go cross-sector. So, you know, the ability to have this early warning system, as well as the ability, you know, in our case with Operation Warp Speed, I'm, I'm fairly certain that, um, you know, a, a, a positive benefit that's going to come out of this is our government seeing, you know, the absolute you know, types of attacks uh, that are being inflicted on some of these private sector companies, right? And, you know, just like our Constitution defines where, you know, the, the, the role of the government is to help, um, you know, help in our protection, I, I think that this is going to, you know, create uh, an irreversible trend where we will work much more closely with the, um, you know, public-private sector partnerships. Yeah, so, so uh, you know, 
um, I, I started off by saying public-private partnerships, uh, but clearly one of the, one of the hallmarks of Project Warp Speed, right, is um, that the companies themselves are working together, right? It, it's it's not necessarily that that every participant is talking to the government independently. It's really a collaborative environment where the government is an important stakeholder, right, but not the only stakeholder. And so if we extend that to cybersecurity, I think, uh, you know, things that come to mind are the, the ISACs, right? They, they, are not, uh, they are not inherently governmental. Um, they, they are tied to the government, but it's really this, this group of companies that have come together to, to jointly defend. Um, and so when, when we're talking about collective defense, I think, John, I think you're talking about collective defense as sort of the next step. Uh, you know, moving moving beyond traditional threat sharing um, to, to figure out better ways to address the to address the threat. Is that fair? Yeah, and and more so, you know, as we know, you know, collective defense is part of an evolution, right? Um, you know, legacy. You know, uh, there's nothing wrong with what we what we had up until today, right? The information is still useful. Um, the challenge in the past, though, is We'd share threat information, but it was left up to the individual organization to do what they do with that, right? Um, there was no sharing beyond that. And, and so when we look at collective defense, you know, we're taking that to another level, but we're also taking it to a level in real time, um, which is also, an, you know, an improvement or an evolution of uh, those legacy models. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and talking about things like that, about actually applying, applying threat intelligence or just applying knowledge in general that an organization has learned, right? It, it seems to me, and I'll, I'll direct this to Tim, that, uh, that, that a, a platform, I'll call it a platform, but AWS, right, where you host so many, so many different applications that organizations use, where you host operational infrastructure for those organizations, uh, it just seems to me that there is a tremendous opportunity that AWS has um, to help the cybersecurity world, right? Not only using your platform to correlate data, but act absolutely using uh, using your services to help drive adoptions of best practices, uh, drive adoption of threat intel. Can you can you can you talk a little bit about how AWS is playing in that game? Uh, sure. I mean, compared to what we've seen happening on prem over the last twenty years, uh, the cloud represents you know, a clear opportunity to modernize our approach to cybersecurity. So besides the economic advantages of the cloud and scalability and agility and all of the reasons businesses and public sector organizations come to the cloud, um, I, there's two sort of game changers in my mind for security uh, professionals. So one, the cloud is API-driven, and so everything's an API call. So from a security and compliance perspective, all we have to do is log those API calls and watch them kind of in real time, and we can identify indicators of compromise. We can use threat intel both from AWS security as well as our partners to identify what's going on inside of AWS in near real time. And the other game changer is automation. So can we do incident response? based on what we're seeing in those APIs in near real time. And so between those two things, you can have really high levels of automation. You can get people away from data, 
because, you know, that's attackers are both trying to leverage technology as well as people. So if you get people away from the data, it has security and privacy benefits. And you automate as much of that as, as possible so that you get people out of the data business, you enable them with APIs. The things they can do are limited to what the APIs enable them to do. And so then you can start to marry that kind of model together with threat intel and this notion of collective defense, where, for instance, we've got our guard duty service, which looks at the API calls I talked about. So those are cloud trail logs. All the API calls get plugged in cloud trail. It uses DNS queries, and it uses virtual private cloud net flow data. And it uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to churn through that mass amount of data in real time. And then it applies that threat intel from AWS partners to try to understand what's really happening there in all of that data. And the only way that's even possible is if you have AI, ML, storage, API calls from everything happening, because everything has to go through an API call. That's only possible in the cloud. And so marrying that with this concept of you know, threat intel being injected from third parties as well as AWS, we think is a very powerful model. Sure. Now, I'm curious. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier today that uh, you've seen changes since March where, where more organizations are adopting um, uh, cloud-based services and, and even accelerating the, the, the push uh, to have their infrastructure within within public cloud, right, within AWS, which is all good for you because, in fact, your title is accelerator for uh, for, for cloud adoption and security, right? So that, that's all good. Um, I was wondering if if you can characterize uh, sort of the, the split, uh, however you want to characterize it, uh, in, in what sort of industries or what areas of government are actually accelerating and for organizations that are moving more rapidly to the cloud, how many of those are actually taking advantage of security tools uh, in, in, that, in that infrastructure, right? Because go, going to the cloud and not taking advantage of everything is like going to New York City with blinders on and not eating at a restaurant or seeing a show, right? So how many are actually partaking of that full experience? Right. So I think... Uh, what we're seeing is transformations across, you know, in every vertical of the public sector. So when you think of education, healthcare, you know, research, uh, you look at energy in some countries, you look at regulation and regulators, you look at federal government, state, local government. We're seeing um, adoption across the board uh, to support ongoing uh, digital transformation projects or some in some countries they're just kicking them off now, right? So we're seeing a cross the board uptake. There is definitely a maturity curve though, uh, in terms of how much security goodness they're using, right? And so I'll use for instance, uh, I've seen a lot of different security strategies used over the years. There's a lot of organizations that might have a security strategy that they've built on premise, and their their first notion when they first start considering the cloud is to lift and shift that into the cloud and do more of the same in the cloud. And there's advantages to that because they have to uh, leverage the, the tribal knowledge and the expertise that they've built inside the organization. So there, to some extent, they have to continue to do that. But the curve kind of goes from the old-fashioned strategies that we've seen on-prem to the newer strategies like 
uh, Zero Trust and CI/CD pipeline, like DevOps. And so moving from a world where uh, you're trying to protect things on-prem using multiple different strategies to a world where the only way things get into production is through a continuous integration, continuous deployment pipeline. And in that pipeline, you're checking for requirements at every step of the way so that you know when things get into production, they absolutely meet your security and compliance requirements. And then you can use some of those new technologies to make sure they stay that way. And then the most mature organizations that I've talked to use short-lived environments. So instead of like on-prem where you have servers that are running for years at a time with these really, really long-term credentials that ultimately get leaked or stolen or whatever, okay, to, to environments that run for a couple of hours, and then you blow them away, and new environments get deployed through the CI-CD pipeline by, for instance, auto-scaling, which is automatically deploying um, new instances. And those instances are based on the gold image that you have. And that gold image is the thing that you keep up to date, the thing that you keep patched, the thing that you scan for vulnerabilities and misconfigurations and so on. And so instead of having to scan thousands of systems, patch them, reboot them, you're really simplifying patch management and just focused on a single image or a group of images. Everything getting into production already requires and every couple of hours, it gets blown away so that even if bad guys get, a, get onto those systems, they only have a couple of hours access to them. And so this type of maturity, you know, from lifting and shifting to embracing native cloud features to real dev sec ops is sort of a journey for a lot of customers that I talk to. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the, you know, when you talk about cyber maturity, there will always be companies, organizations, government agencies, however you want to define the groupings, right, that are less mature than others, right? That, that's always going to be the case. And I think a lot of the cloud technologies perhaps raise the bar when, in how good those, you know, the worst cybersecurity companies, the worst cybersecurity agencies are. What we call a, we call it a cybersecurity talent amplifier. Because you know that cybersecurity talent has been so hard to attract and retain in this industry for a decade now. So if you can use something like the cloud to amplify the talent you have, you know, it makes your cybersecurity team much bigger than what you had on prep. Yeah. So, so you know, talking about that, that talent amplification, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of, of collective defense uh, and, and in, in one of the one of the tenets of collective defense. When I talk about it, I think of uh, the the greatest among us helping the least among us. Right, where where the the scant analytic resources, right, the, the best people in the world uh, at analyzing cyber threats aren't necessary. They may work for one organization, right, but their expertise impacts hundreds or thousands of organizations almost in real time, um, you know, and, and so, you know, I'd, I'd ask John, right, John, um, you, you talked a little bit about, about your definition of collective defense, and, and I've just given you, you know, one of, one of the things that I think is very important, right, that, that real-time sharing of knowledge where, where the best help defend the least. Um, are, there, are there some other, some other visionary things where, uh, where you think collective defense can get to? Yeah, well, Mike, you hit on you hit on a big one. You know, I, I look at collective defense as a force multiplier. 
right? Where, you know, as a as a former CISO, um, you know, you, you're constrained by by budget. You know, you you have constraints. There's no doubt about it, right? And you know, you you might be constrained by your talent, right? And um, you know, I I think the, one of the key benefits of collective defense is exactly that. Um, is is getting this force multiply of talent in real time out there um, that educates people, you know, almost in real time as well. Like if you look at say what they do with with bug bounties, um, it's almost a similar premise, right? Uh, bug bounty programs are wonderful because you have these researchers, which is the the common term for them, right? <laughs> but you have these researchers out there, and they're trying to find vulnerabilities in your products, but they don't work for you, right? And, and they end up getting like little stars and badges along the way, as well as money, but, but, they, but they become known. And in a collective defense model, we could have that same thing. You know, look, not, not all of our resources are having the best day. And, and maybe a best analyst is, uh, is, is often, uh, you know, in a ruber on PTO, right? Um, so, I, you know, to me, that, that's, that's a huge concept of, of you know, getting that force multiplier, getting that collective knowledge and, and increase in in education, right? And that's and all of that's very very repeatable and scalable, um, you know. So that's you know a, that's definitely uh, a, a key component as far as I'm concerned, and and one that I wish um, you know at, when I was a, a, a CISO, if I if I had that type of capability, I would have jumped all over it for sure. Um, but I think the other thing too, Mike is is um, getting through another key benefit of collective defense is, is really getting rid of the garbage, right? Um, you know, I was talking to a, a large health plan yesterday, and, you know, their, you know, threat intel analyst at their lead, you know, told me, he said, John, if I could just get rid of all of this noise that's coming our way, you know, we, we don't have a really good way of, of getting rid of, um, things that might be, just be false positives or, you know, we're just, we're inundated, right? And and I think another, you know, great, you know, side uh, benefit of collective defense is getting rid of that garbage, right? You can see what everybody is doing and how everybody feels about this. And you can begin between that and the automation that comes along with it. Um, you know, you can actually trim that noise down to something that's actionable because at the end of the day, um, you know, these people want to contribute, they want to do good things, but, um, you know, they, they have to have actionable data to work on. So, uh, to me, I, I think those two items are pretty big. Yeah, yeah, all, all great points, John. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, again, I, I've spent a long time, a lot of time thinking about collective defense, um, and, and you're exactly right, right? And it, it's it's trying to get some of the, the best analysts to get that knowledge disseminated as quickly as possible. Um, I, I think one of the things uh, for for folks that I've talked to that are participating in, in collective defense, at least with IronNet, um, is that they have been they have been uh, really helped by understanding the context of of their environment as it relates to, you know, perhaps their supply chain or their region or their sector. And, and what I mean by that is we have found that um, given the knowledge that uh, cyber activity that I see in my network 
uh, is also going on in one or two or three other organizations, right? Um, because because we have aggregated and analyzed that data, um, it has started driving SOC operations. So that if I have an analyst that's looking for a new challenge to dig into, I can say, hey, you know, here are here are two things that are potentially equally important to my organization. This one here seems to be affecting just me. But because of the information from the collective, the information that has been provided uh, that, that everyone can see now, I know that this activity over here is also, uh, is also prevalent in two or three or four other organizations. And it turns out I have the right guy to look into it. So if I look into that one, I will help, right? I will be part of the greater good. Um, and so I've seen, I've started to see uh, folks that are that are working with our collective defense platform uh, start driving SOC analyst operations based on that situational awareness view, right? Based on the fact that uh, I now know that things are going on in other companies, other organizations, other governments, right, in my supply chain. That 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 prior to this sort of platform, to this sort of capability, I never would have known. Right? What's, what's the point of having five analysts triaging the exact same thing at the exact same time? Well, maybe if we work together, we can just have one triaging it, right? Um, I, think, I think that also points, points back to, to, to Tim, to AWS, right? Um, you know, Iron is a small company. Right? We have a couple hundred people, uh, you know, a couple dozen customers that, that we are providing this sort of collective defense for. Uh, and, and actually, for those that are viewing, you know, we're actually going to get into into a demo of what that platform looks like and, and, and what it means to our users. Uh, but it strikes me, Tim, that that you know, AWS. Uh, I'll, I'll just say public cloud infrastructure, right? Because you're not the only one, probably the biggest, but not the only one. Uh, that that you have a huge role, um, and it's not just in not again, not just in the platform. But, but it's in the trust you have with companies, right, that, that you've built that uh, allows them to make the leap, which was once unheard of. Oh, I'm going to take all my op operations and put it in a data center that I control, uh, that I don't control, on servers that I don't even know what they are, right? I mean, that was a huge leap. Um, but I think there's been a change in trust that, that enables AWS to be successful, honestly. And, and I think that trust is going to extend to providing cybersecurity solutions and teaming with small companies like ours to provide, to provide new solutions. So uh, there wasn't really a question in there, but I'm curious, Tim, you know, you've heard myself and John talk a little bit about collective defense uh, on where you see AWS helping in that journey. Right. So sort of thing, like when I look at collective defense and, and how it operates from, a, from an internet perspective, I think the, the things that you're doing that earn trust amongst your customers, for instance, are the anonymization of the data. Because we know that people are willing to um, share data, but they don't want to necessarily share insights into what's happening in their environment because that can have all sorts of negative consequences for them. And so that's why at AWS, we can't see what's happening inside of an account. We give the customers the tools, both regional tools and global tools, to give them insight into what's happening into their account. Now, from a big network perspective, we see things happening on the big network perspective that when we see an indicator of compromise, we will contact the customer 
and let them know what we're seeing. But inside that account, that's really a place for customers to do their thing, to use our tools, and to leverage IronNet and tools like IronNet. And the thing that underpins all that, as you mentioned, is trust. And so trust is a combination of transparency, and I think the anonymization of data is key to that, right? So um, being able to share with people what's happening in a geography or what's happening in an industry without revealing who is providing that data within that geography and that industry is pretty key. And so from our AWS perspective, we take you know privacy and that transparency very, very seriously. And so that's, you know, for us, is we don't have insight into what's happening into an account, and that's why we're providing these tools and getting partners to provide threat intel to help our customers understand what's happening inside their account. And that's what makes partnerships with with uh, partners like you so important because we need those insights that you're getting from from the industry verticals and from the geographies and so on. That stuff is gold dust when it comes to threat intel and then enabling automation to recognize what's happening and take action, right? So that that's key. It really is. Let me talk a little bit about um, where we are on this collective defense journey right now. So as you can probably tell, it's, you've been an attentive listener. Uh, uh, one of the one of the core mission areas that IronNet focuses on is this is this concept of uh, collective defense, and we do in fact have a platform that realizes some, not all of the benefits uh, that could be had, but, but realizes some of the benefits uh, that could be had when you decide to take this uh, collective defense uh, strategy, if you will, and operationalize it. Um, one of the interesting parts about what we've done is when, when folks deploy our platform, uh, the, the data, as Tim mentioned, and thank you for bringing that up, Tim, right? Um, we push data to this platform. Again, we host in AWS. We take we we take advantage of all their security and privacy controls. But we push we push uh, anonymized data up into AWS, and we aggregate that data and we analyze uh, across that data set from multiple organizations. Uh, I'll give you a great example. The, the very first group that we had do this um, was we we are very fortunate to have. Um, I think seven of the ten largest electric utilities in the U.S. as customers within Iron Dome that forms our sort of our energy Iron Dome, if you will, or at least the core of that dome. And they have all agreed to share cyber-related data at a speed and scale that they had never done before, so that we can aggregate that data anonymously, right, and draw insights from that. And what they found is that. Um, since since the data is is largely their data set, everything they learn is relevant to them, right? It's not a feed of four thousand uh, threat indicators a day that may or may not uh, ever ever be seen on the network. Everything is is very intimate, if you will, to, to their to their uh, environment. One of the other interesting points about that is that. Um, they actually pushed us to provide that level of visibility uh, to the U.S. government, right? Because uh, they wanted to enable the government to have an anonymized view into their portion of critical infrastructure. And so we've struck up a program with DHS where we are providing the sorts of uh, correlations, again, on an anonymized basis. It can't be tracked back to 
any particular utility, any particular company, um, that give that gives now the government, it gives DHS insight into into behaviors, uh, into campaigns that are traversing these different critical infrastructure sectors, and and so with that, first of all, I would like to thank everybody uh, that attended for listening to us. Uh, I hope you've gotten something out of it. I hope your uh, your understanding of the art of possible has grown a little bit. Um, when we're talking about collective defense, I think the things to keep in mind are that if you decide to participate uh, in our next version of collective defense, uh, I'm not certain that there's any others out there that do it quite like we do. Um, but the, the, the real the real drivers are much greater situational awareness uh, of you and and your community. Um, it is absolutely a force multiplier for SOX by sharing uh, investigations and analysis in real time amongst organizations. Uh, there's an element of real time collaboration uh, built into this. And, and, and finally, we didn't touch on this much, but one of the most critical aspects of collective defense is that it really does drive discovery of new attacks and new attack infrastructure in a way that if everyone operated alone, right, if everyone was a tree, you may never see that forest. Uh, but we are, we are really helping identify the forest and identifying the things sweeping through that forest uh, that only a collective picture and, and aggregation of data can provide. Again, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information on how Kerasoft, IronNet Cybersecurity, or AWS can assist your federal agency, please visit www.kerasoft.com or email us at ironnetmarketing at kerasoft.com or awsmarketing at kerasoft.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.